Well, morning, everybody. It's really good to be with you back all again. Um, our reading this morning is taken from John chapter 9, um, verses 1 to 12. May the Lord add um, his blessing to the reading and preaching of the word this morning. John chapter 9 from verse 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Here ends the reading of God's word. Good. Well, do please uh, have that passage open in front of you. And uh, I'm going to ask the Lord to be with us at this first study in our new series. Well, Heavenly Father, over the last couple of years, we have experienced all kinds of restrictions and limitations to our freedom. But through it all, one freedom has remained, which is the freedom to read your word. Help us, Lord, not to despise it, not to take it lightly, but to treasure it, to treat it reverently. And we pray now that as we look at this passage together, that you would give clarity to speaker and to hearer alike. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, for the benefit of those on the tape, we are beginning a new series in John's Gospel this morning. And the reason we're doing it is because we want to understand what Jesus means when he says, I am the light of the world. He actually says it twice in John's book, uh, once in chapter 8 and verse 12, and then again in our passage this morning in chapter 9 and verse 5. It is actually the, the second of seven statements that Jesus makes about himself, uh, beginning with the words, I am. No doubt Jesus said lots of other things as well, 
that John has very carefully selected these seven statements to help us understand who Jesus is and why it matters. I think most people who've never been anywhere near a church have probably heard these words at some time or other, but I guess that only a tiny minority know who said it or what it really means. Someone who certainly did know was a man called William Holman Hunt. Uh, He was a famous 19th century artist, and he devoted his life to communicating the greatest truths of the Christian faith in his paintings. He was a very remarkable man. Probably his most famous picture, which is going to appear on the screen now, was inspired by these particular words of Jesus. And yet this marvellous painting, which probably you've all seen at some time or other, gives us a little puzzle to go away and think about. Because although Hunt calls his painting the light of the world, the scripture on which he based it was actually Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Some of you will remember from our series in Revelation that uh, in that famous verse, the Lord Jesus says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Well, obviously there he is knocking on the door. But for the time being, I simply want you to notice that in Revelation 3.20, there is no reference whatsoever to Jesus as the light of the world. So what on earth was Holman Hunt trying to tell us? It's a puzzle. More about that in a moment. Let's begin by getting our bearings in chapter 9, where John is recording for us the six of seven miracles or signs in his gospel. Uh, The other gospel writers give us many more of Jesus' miracles than John does. But just as John gave us seven sayings of Jesus, all beginning with the words, I am, so he's also carefully selected seven miracles or signs, each one of them pointing to a different aspect of Jesus' identity and ministry. Now, in the context, this particular sign is designed to show us what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world. The basic outline, I think, is fairly simple. And John here introduces us, I think, to one of the most memorable minor characters in the whole of the New Testament, a man who had been blind from birth. Jesus says that his condition was not the result of sin, Rather, it was something that God allowed or worked through so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. The man meets Jesus. Jesus does two marvelous things for him. Firstly, Jesus gives him physical sight. Later on in verse 32, we're told that no one had ever heard of a miracle like this before. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, I'm sure you know this, there are several accounts of other blind people receiving their sight. 
But this is the only recorded miracle in the whole of the New Testament where sight is given to someone who was blind from birth. But secondly, Jesus does a far greater miracle. You see, before this incident, the blind man had never heard about Jesus. But Jesus opens his mind to understand who he really is. And very wonderfully, by the time we get to verse 35 and following, the man becomes a believer and worships Christ. So in this historical event, which really happened, there were eyewitnesses there to see it, what we're given here actually is also a picture of what happens in every true conversion. Now, I think this is especially relevant, isn't it, in our context, where so many of our friends and family claim to have been converted at some time or other. And, of course, many of them really have. Praise God for that. But with some, isn't it true, we're not quite so sure. Because when we look at their lives, actually very little seems to have changed. They're not so very different, are they, from how they were before. And what chapter 9 is teaching us is that unless their conversion has had the same essential elements as the experience of this blind man, we really must question whether they ever were truly converted in the first place. Now, because this is actually such an important event in John's account, it's going to take us three Sundays to cover the chapter. This morning, we're simply concerned with the essential elements of Christian conversion that we find in the opening verses. So isn't that an appropriate thing for us to be doing on the first Sunday of a new year? I hope you agree with me on that. What are these essential elements? First, we're shown the hopelessness of man, humanity. Then we're shown the first sign of new life, spiritual life, eternal life. And thirdly, we're shown the radical change which follows. So firstly then, the hopelessness of man. Now, throughout the Gospel, uh, John keeps repeating the same message about all human beings. Over and over again, he reminds us that by nature, all of us prefer spiritual darkness to light. And if you've kind of read John's Gospel before, I think this language of light and dark will be very familiar to you. But what does it actually mean? Well, the man in this story, I think, gives us the clearest possible illustration because he is a picture of the hopelessness of all humanity apart from Christ. He's introduced to us as a blind beggar and in the days before proper health care, to be blind was to be condemned to a life of poverty and suffering. But let's go a bit further than that. Let's put ourselves in the blind man's shoes for a moment and try to imagine the actual consequences of his condition. I can think of at least three. First, although Jesus could see him, the blind man 
couldn't see Jesus. He couldn't even see Jesus when Jesus was standing right in front of him. It's possible that he sensed someone was there, but if he did, he certainly didn't know who it was or what his presence signified. Second, he was unable to value what he was missing. I mean, how could he? He'd been blind from birth. I mean, had he lived with tremendous sight, 20-20 vision for 30 or 40 years or so, and then had a terrible accident and lost his sight, well then, of course, he would know precisely what he was missing. But that wasn't the case here. Now, of course, he knew that his life was incomplete because he had to beg for a living. But he was unable to value the gift of physical sight properly because he'd never been able to see Third, he didn't pray for sight. I find this particularly interesting. Because, you see, humanly speaking, that's what he needed most. And this man was a beggar. So he knew how to ask people for things, didn't he? But where his sight was concerned, this man doesn't do that. Now, I take it that's because he knew his condition was hopeless. I mean, what's the point of asking for something that you know is humanly impossible? And that's why there's no suggestion anywhere in the text that the man expected the miracle that followed. Uh, He didn't ask Jesus for it. He didn't expect it. So can you see that as the story begins, this man has got very little going for him? except perhaps for one thing. At least he was in the place where Jesus was most likely to be found. Did you notice that? Of course, he hadn't planned it that way. But the place where he was begging was outside the temple. And presumably, that's because thousands and thousands of people passed through the gate of the temple every day, and he could ask them for money and food. And it was here, outside the temple, where Jesus spent so much of his time that Jesus found the blind man. Now, when we put all these things together, isn't that a painfully accurate picture of so many of our friends and family? might even be a picture of someone here this morning. They can't actually see spiritual truth. They might have heard the gospel being preached. They might have been reading the Bible and perhaps even one or two Christian books. But they can't actually understand what's being said. And they can't see Jesus. They can't value what they're missing because they've never experienced Jesus and all that he has to offer. And so they've never asked him to open their eyes. So spiritually speaking, they are in a desperate condition. But they're completely unaware of it, and they have no desire to change. Now, that is the background, that background of spiritual darkness against which Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And immediately he shows us what he means 
by opening the man's eyes so he can see and at the same time opening his mind so that by the time we get down to verse 38, the man is able to say to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Now, friends, there are two important lessons for us in this. First, in order to become a Christian, all of us need this miracle. Of course, we all need to hear the gospel. But can I say that hearing alone is not enough? When I was growing up in the UK, I must have heard the gospel on numerous occasions. Uh, At my school... Uh, Very remarkably, the chaplain wasn't a Christian. That's a remarkable thing. Why appoint a man a chaplain if he's not a Christian? Anyway, the school did it. No doubt there were visiting preachers on some Sundays who were godly Christian men, and I have no doubt at all that at some point the gospel was preached. But at the time, it meant absolutely nothing to me. It was simply interesting information and no more. My life continued totally unchanged. And uh, it was only one day after I'd already been working in London for 10 years that somebody took me along to a businessman's outreach and uh, Jesus opened my eyes. I wasn't expecting it. I didn't ask for it. But from that day on, the fireworks began to go off. You see, before that lunchtime, um, I might be flattering myself here, but I I think I probably thought I I was a humanist. In other words, I had convinced myself then, as many people convince themselves today, that people are basically good and have it within themselves to live in a way that pleases God. And so if God existed, as I reasoned at the time, then he was bound to let me into heaven because I was living an outwardly respectable life. But friends, I've got to tell you that that day, for the first time, I understood that far from being good enough for God, I was a sinner. I was cut off from the life of God and from the love of God. And instead of heading for heaven, I was heading for hell. And the point is this that in spite of all of my religious privileges and hearing the gospel regularly, I needed a miracle from Jesus. And without it, I would have been lost. Now that, my dear friends, is the greatest need of all people everywhere. It is the greatest need of all your unbelieving friends and family, however charming and delightful they might be. That's the first lesson. The second lesson for us is that Christians have got an absolutely vital part to play in this miracle. Put your nose on verse 4. In verse 4, Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says something very interesting. He says, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. In other words, the disciples of Jesus Christ share in this tremendous work. How do we do it? Well, keep one finger, please, in John chapter 9, 
and turn uh, right in your Bible to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, God willing, we're going to do a series in the book of Acts at the end of the year, so here's a little preview. Acts chapter 26, verse 16. And what's happening here is that the risen Christ is giving uh, his commission to the Apostle Paul after he met him on the Damascus Road. Acts 26, verse 16. Now get up, Paul, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. Now fasten your seatbelts. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from Satan to God so that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, of course, we need to be terribly careful here because we're not the Apostle Paul. We don't have the same ministry. But what Jesus is saying is that Paul and the other apostles were eyewitnesses of everything Jesus said and did. And the point for us, you see, is that if we want our unbelieving friends and family to receive the forgiveness of their sins and a place in God's eternal family, then what we have to do is present what Paul and the other apostles have written about Jesus and pray that Jesus will open their eyes. So, friends, right at the very start of 2022, I want to challenge you, each one of you, to take this seriously and to share in this work. If I will do my very best to present faithfully what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus week by week, won't you commit to inviting your unbelieving friends to come and listen so that Jesus opens their blind eyes? Will you do that? You know, please, friends, don't be deceived into thinking that just because they're lovely people that you don't have to do it, and that God is absolutely bound to let them into heaven on the last day. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. From God's point of view, they are absolutely as hopeless as I was and you were before we were saved. And they are in desperate need of Jesus to open their blind eyes. Right, come back please to John chapter 9 as we consider the second essential ingredient in every Christian conversion. The first sign of new life. Now, if you've um, ever been on any of the excellent introductory courses to the Christian faith, and there are several of them, Christianity Explored, Introducing God, and a number of others, you will know that fairly early on, uh, we're taught that in order to become a Christian, I must first of all have faith that Jesus is who he says he is. Of course, the problem is that uh, it's such an easy thing to say, isn't it? I mean, anybody can say, I believe. 
But how can we really know whether such a claim is true or not? So it's highly significant that in chapter 9, the word faith is missing. John never uses it. Now, at first, that rather sort of took me by surprise. Uh, How can John be giving us the essentials of every true Christian conversion without mentioning faith? And then I realized, of course, that because faith is a very broad term that can be made to mean just about anything, John has instead given us a picture of what real faith looks like in practice. So please notice, will you, that twice within the space of only a few verses, uh, verse, for your notes, verse 7, and then again verse 11, John tells us that the blind man obeyed Jesus' command to go and wash. And after he had obeyed, he was healed. Now notice the sequence in verse 7. Let's follow it through. Verse 7. Go, Jesus told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. There's the command. Okay? There's the command of Jesus. So the man went and washed. Well, that's obedience, isn't it? And he came home seeing. Now, notice that the healing follows the man's obedience. A pretty obvious point, but it's an important point. The man's obedience to the command of Christ was evidence that his faith was real. And only afterwards did he receive his sight. And John gives us that same sequence twice in chapter 9 because he thinks we might miss it and it's important. Now, I don't know whether you know this, but it's the same pattern throughout the Bible. Um, And I think the point is that faith without obedience means nothing. And it achieves nothing. And uh, that brings us back to Holman Hunt's painting, actually. Michael, if you wouldn't mind putting it back on the screen. Because there's a fascinating detail in the painting, which is actually very easy to miss. In fact, if you're sitting so far away from it, it's impossible for you. But if we do miss it, actually, we miss what Holman Hunt was trying to say through his work. Because if you look very carefully you'll see that there is no handle on the outside of the door. Now, as I say, you can't see it from where you're sitting, but the original is on display at Keble College, Oxford. And 12 years ago, I had the privilege of standing three feet away from it, and I can assure you the handle isn't there. In other words, the door can only be opened from the inside. <laughs> it must have been rather frustrating for Holman Hunt because apparently for years uh, nobody understood what he was trying to say through his picture. So actually 50 years after he painted that painting, he felt he had to explain himself. And this is what he wrote. This is what the artist said. He said, The door without a handle on the outside represents the obstinately shut mind. Let me say that again. 
The door without a handle on the outside represents the obstinately shut mind. Now, I don't know about you, but I think once we understand that, the message is clear, isn't it? Because Jesus is the light of the world, only he can open our eyes to see our desperate need of the rescue that only he can provide. But the rescue only takes place when we lay aside our pride and open the door of our lives, asking Jesus to wash our sins away and to come in as our Lord and Saviour. Now that is what Jesus commands, and that obedience is the first sign that Jesus has given us new life. And that is the pattern throughout Holy Scripture. Let's have one example just to anchor it in our minds. Won't you please turn to 2 Kings chapter 5 in the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 5. I should really hand over at this point to White because he's the expert on this part of the Bible and I'm not. Um, But here we go, 2 Kings chapter 5, you probably know the story. Um, It's about a man called Naaman, who was a commander in the Syrian army. He was a very powerful and highly respected man. So, you know, think of a sort of top government minister or something like that. But he had leprosy, which in those days was a death sentence. But uh, Naaman had heard about God's prophet Elisha and all the amazing miracles that he was doing in Israel. So Naaman went to see him. And uh, Elisha told him to wash in the Jordan seven times, and he would be healed. Now, you would think, wouldn't you, that a person in such a desperate situation wouldn't hesitate for a moment to obey such a simple instruction. I mean, what's difficult about that? But how did Naaman react? Verse 11. Can we all see 2 Kings 5, verse 11? But Naaman went away angry and said, Well, I thought Elisha would come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Now pause on that, stay in 2 Kings 5, we haven't finished. But isn't that typical of so many unbelievers today? You see, deep down inside, they know they're spiritually sick, yes they do. They know that they need to be healed. But they feel that the cure that Jesus is offering in church through this gospel, well, it's, it's really rather beneath my dignity, you know. So they do nothing with it. And as far as they're concerned, it's really only so much mud and spit. Don't you know people like that? I know I do. Fortunately, it wasn't quite the end of the story for Naaman, was it? Verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, Wouldn't you have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. 
and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. What's the point? The point is, you see, that active obedience demonstrates our faith in God's promise in a way that, frankly, mere words do not. And it makes the spiritual healing complete. And that is precisely how it is in the gospel. The first sign of new life is active obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ. Well, please come back with me uh, very briefly to John chapter 9 as we consider the third essential element in every true conversion, which is the radical change which follows. Well, John tells us, doesn't he, that after Jesus had opened his eyes, this man was different. Now, we're not going to say a lot about that this morning because I want to try and develop this a bit more next Sunday morning, so I do hope you'll be here. But for now, just notice verses 8 and 9. Verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Of course, in one sense, he looked completely different, just because he wasn't blind anymore. So that must have changed his appearance in some way. But notice, will you, that the people who were confused were his neighbors. These were the people who'd known him for a long time. They'd probably seen him every single day. But he was so different that even these people couldn't agree that he was the same person. And friends, if we have been truly converted... Well, the same should be true of us. William Wilberforce was born into a wealthy family, and uh, as a child, he sat under the preaching of men like Whitfield and Wesley and Newton, and you couldn't sit under better preaching than that. But it wasn't actually until much later that the Lord opened his eyes, and when he did, Wilberforce described the event in his own words as the great change. You see, before the great change, Wilberforce had lived totally for himself in wealth and luxury. But afterwards, after the great change, he used all of his wealth and his influence in Parliament as a means of helping not just slaves overseas, but the poor and the oppressed under his nose in his own country. Now, of course, few, if any of us, are going to walk in his footsteps. But you see, if Jesus Christ has truly opened your eyes, then one of the signs that this has happened is that people who know you will start saying to each other, what on earth has happened to Raymond? He's so different. He's not the man that he used to be at all. And friends, when people start saying that, that is a sign that Jesus has opened your eyes. Well, let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, amidst all of the darkness and confusion, we praise you that Jesus is the light of the world, the light of truth, and the light of life. Those of us who are Christians, thank you that you have opened our eyes to see it. Father, we also thank you for calling us to share in your great work of opening the eyes of the blind by proclaiming the gospel to others. So at the start of this new year, we ask that you would give each one of us a burden to do this work faithfully through prayer, through invitation, and through teaching. And we pray that as we do, that the eyes of the blind would be wonderfully opened and their lives gloriously changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.